Father, it is time for the mortals to pay. My child waits to do your will. Leave us. the Kraken! Good morning. Welcome to the Orchard Church of Alaska. Felt that way last week, didn't it? I don't know how many of you guys saw the uh, hit movie that was out last year called Clash of the Titans. How many of you guys saw that movie? That was a scene from the movie. And I remember when I was watching that movie and, and it came to this scene, it reminded me of a scene right out of Revelation chapter 9 that we're going to be looking at today. Now in that scene, you've basically got the evil, uh, his name was Hades, a pretty good name for an evil person. And he's coming to the Greek god Zeus and he's asking permission to release this evil being out of a pit and so that it can terrorize mankind because uh, they weren't following the god Zeus and I thought uh, of that scene and of course that's from Greek mythology and that may be a myth but what we're gonna read today and study is much like that scene in the movie but it's not a myth it's really gonna happen one of these days it's truth as we are in Revelation chapter 9 uh, verses 1 through 22 today. We're going to try and look at all of this chapter uh, this morning. We're continuing our series, Return of the King, a journey through the book of Revelation. I want to kind of catch you up where we've been so far. Uh, the last several weeks we've been looking at the things, the events that are, that are prophetic, that are yet to take place, but will take place, we believe, during the seven years of tribulation on this earth, which will begin right after the church is raptured. And we've been mainly focusing on the first three and a half years of tribulation and the judgments that will come upon mankind kind uh, during that time. As we jumped into chapter 6, we saw that there was a seven-sealed scroll that began to be opened, and as each of those seals was opened, a judgment came upon the earth uh, during the tribulation period uh, upon those who had rejected Christ and were not giving their life to Him. And then we had a little break in chapter 7, and then we got into chapter 8, and then we saw the seven trumpet judgments begin to take place last week. We looked at four of the seven trumpet judgments last week. We saw that a third of the vegetation would be destroyed, a third of the seas, a third of the ships, uh, the water would be poisoned, the sun would become dark, the moon would become dark, and we saw those first four trumpet judgments begin to take place. And now today we're going to pick it up looking at the next two, and then we'll look at the third one in a couple of weeks to come in our uh, study. But I want to begin, even though you're in Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, just back up one verse, and this is where we ended last week to kind of get us going for today in the context, and where we ended after the first four trumpet judgments last week, we ended with chapter 8, verse 13, and John said, and I looked and I heard the, an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And here's why he gave those three woes, because of the remaining blast of the trumpet or the trumpet judgments of the three angels who are about to sound. And as we said last week, we've seen four trumpet judgments and as bad as those events are going to be, it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. And it's going to intensify even greater with the final three woes or the final three trumpet judgments as we look at Revelation chapter 9 today. You, you've heard the statement, no doubt, where somebody maybe says, all hell is breaking loose. Well, literally all hell is going to break loose as we go into Revelation chapter 9 today. That's why I've entitled this message, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Now, maybe you've heard that title before. Does that ring a bell to anybody? Um, it was first a phrase that was kind of made famous in Macbeth, uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth. It was a phrase from that play. And then uh, there was a man named Ray Bradbury, who's a writer. Some of you have read his books. He wrote a book, and he uh, called it Something Wicked This Way Comes. It was about two boys, and there was this carnival that came to town, and there was this evil Mr. Dark, and, and he called it Something Wicked This Way Comes. And then maybe you remember the Disney film. In 1983, there was a famous Disney film uh, that was basically based off the book by Ray Bradbury called Something Wicked This Way Comes. Well, let me tell you, um, whether it's Shakespeare or Ray Bradbury's book or Disney's movie, none of them compare to the something wicked that is coming in Revelation chapter 9 that we're going to look at today as this fifth and sixth trumpet is sounding. It's going to be unlike 
anything that this world has ever seen before. I mean, if you think there's evilness and wickedness in the world today, the worst is coming during the tribulation period. I remind you of what Jesus said about the tribulation in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. He said, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world, until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now, you may ask this morning, you know, Pastor, why are we talking about that? You know, I was looking forward to coming to church today. I mean, why all the doom and, and gloom? You know, I mean, come on, it's Super Bowl Sunday. And we got to talk about judgment and evilness and wickedness and all this stuff that's going to happen during the tribulation. Well, let me remind you of a couple of things, church. First of all, let me remind you that before we started the book of Revelation, we took a poll in our church, a survey, and we asked you all, what book of the Bible would you like to study next? And the majority of you said the book of Revelation. So it's your fault, not mine, right? <laughs> Just remember that. You asked for this, okay? Uh, second, I want to remind you, the way we study the Bible here at the Orchard Church, we are dedicated to opening the Word of God, going to a book of the Bible, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, and working our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all the way through as God has laid it out. We are dedicated to studying the Bible that way in this church. Since this church's inception and beginning five years ago, we've studied nine different books of the Bible, verse by verse verse all the way through. And we're not going to change that now when we get into Revelation. I don't think you would want me to. Amen? That's the way we study the Bible. And so it forces us to study God's Word the way God wrote it and God laid it out. And we can't skip the parts that we don't like. We can't skip the parts that are uncomfortable or difficult to talk about. It's not, you know, if I had my choice, I'd have came in here and cheered you guys up with something today. But this is where we're at, and so it's important we study these things. I, there's something else I want to say to you all, though, and I thought of this several times in the study of Revelation, especially as we're getting into these judgments and this doom and gloom and tribulation that's taking place on the earth as we're seeing right now in Revelation. You know, I, when I present the gospel to someone, when I share my faith with someone, what I like to share with them is this, that there is a God that loves them. He sent his son to die for them. He wants to forgive us of our sins. He offers us the most incredible love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness that we could ever be offered in this lifetime or any lifetime. And that's the God we serve. He loved us so much. And I love to present God in that way. And all the benefits that I've experienced and many of you have experienced by having Jesus Christ in your life and all the positives. And that's how I love to present the gospel. And for most people, that's very appealing because most people, when they try to live their life on their own apart from God, they make a mess of things and they feel guilty because of their sins. And, and so they love to hear about the love, mercy, grace, and all the benefits of, of accepting Christ. That's probably some of the reasons why you came to Christ. If that's true, say yes. But you know what? Sometimes you talk to people and they don't know God and they don't know Jesus and their life isn't maybe really that bad or so it would seem. You know, I know people who are not believers and they seem to have a pretty good marriage. They have a pretty good family. They have a pretty good career. Things seem to be going pretty well for them. And if all we present is the positive sides of accepting Christ, some people could say, well, my life is fine. Everything's going great. I don't need Christ. I don't need Jesus. And that is why I believe God reminds us that there are also consequences to not accepting Christ. And I know we don't like to talk about that as much, but that's just as important as the benefits of accepting Christ are the real consequences that we read about in the scriptures. And we, may, we need to make sure we don't forget about that as well. And so as we study through Revelation these things, it reminds us that there is also a consequence when you don't accept Christ. And if you're separated from him for all eternity. I'm reminded of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, Paul said, we persuade men. Not just because of the benefits, because of the consequences if we don't. And so I think this is a good reminder in that way as well. Let's go ahead and pray, and let's jump into Revelation chapter 9, something wicked this way comes today. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here. I thank you that you've uh, gotten all of these people here safely with the snow on the roads and things like that today. And I pray, Lord, that others coming in the second service would be safe. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless our time. I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to your word. And even though this is a difficult subject to talk about, Lord, it is real. Um, it is, we believe it's going to happen just as other prophecies have been fulfilled in your word. Uh, we believe every word of it. 
And even though it's hard to believe, we, we trust by faith what these things say. And I pray that they would uh, bring us to action to share our faith and make sure our lives are right with you. And if there's anyone here that does not know you, that today they would turn their life over to you so they can escape the consequences of not knowing you. And they could experience your love, mercy, and grace and abundant life that you offer to them today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at Revelation chapter 9 today, we're going to look at four observations that I, I see in Revelation 9 as the fifth and sixth trumpet are about to be blown. Now, I will tell you, this is one of the most difficult chapters in Revelation to understand, believe, and interpret. Uh, Dr. Wilburn Smith was a Bible scholar who studied his whole life, pretty much dedicated his whole life to the exclusive study of the book of Revelation and understanding it. And here's what he said about Revelation chapter 9. He said, it's probable that the meaning of the two judgments in this chapter represent the most difficult interpretations of all the interpretations in the book of Revelation. This is a difficult one to interpret, and scholars differ on what the meaning and the belief of these things are. And unfortunately, many times when people study Revelation chapter 9, they try to spiritualize everything away, and they say these are not really going to happen, or it's not literal, and it's figurative, and it's maybe not really demons and things like that. It's modern warfare equipment, and you know, as we're going to see some of the things described here, there are some writers you can read about Revelation 9 commentaries. They'll tell you that what John is describing is a Apache helicopters. I think we need to be careful with that because the way we approach the Word of God is we take everything literal unless the Word of God specifically dictates that it's speaking figuratively. And there is going to be some figurative language in what we're going to see today, but there's going to be a lot of literal language that we have to take literal and trust God that He's a supernatural God that can do and allow anything that He wants to allow. And I want you to understand that as we go into Revelation chapter 9 today. The first observation as we go to the first two verses, and if you're taking notes, the first point, number one, is the unlocked pit. We see the unlocked pit. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. So first of all, John says, I saw a star that had fallen or fallen from heaven. Now, we've seen stars falling out of the heavens in other judgments that we said might be meteors or asteroids, but this is a different kind of star. Did you notice the context here? John said, I saw a star, and then he said, and to him. So this star is not a star like in the sky, but this is a person he's describing. I believe the person that he's describing here is Satan himself. I believe that because we know that in Isaiah chapter 14, you can check it out later, we find that in eternity past, there was an angelic being named Lucifer. Anybody ever heard that name before? That was Satan's name before he fell. His name was Lucifer. And here's what Lucifer means. Get this in your notes. Brightness or day star. Brightness or day star. And he was a fallen angel. And Luke chapter 10 verse 18, I believe Jesus clearly lets us know who John's describing because Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So I believe John is describing Lucifer's fall in the past, not that he's falling during the tribulation. Notice the language he uses in verse 1. And I saw a star falling? No, fallen. This could also read or had fallen. It's in the past tense. And that's certainly what happened to Lucifer in eternity past when he, like a star, fell from heaven, was kicked out of heaven because of his rebellion against God. And notice what was given to this star, to Lucifer, to Satan, was given to him the key to the bottomless pit. And notice he had to be given the key to the bottomless pit. He didn't have complete authority on his own. Folks, let's never forget that Satan has no authority at all apart from what God gives him. He answers to God. And here, God, during this judgment, allows him to be given the key to the pit, but he has to have permission. And you're going to see this today in a couple different places. It reminds us of this encouraging truth amidst the doom and gloom, that God is in ultimate control of everything. He's in control of the universe. He's in control of heaven. He's, control, he's in control. When we see these tribulation things happen, these judgments, they're not an accident. They're not a coincidence. As a matter of fact, they're part of the divine, sovereign plan of God. But he's in control, and he has his hand on the throttle, and nothing happens without his permission. That's why I want to be on his team. 
I want to be on his side, the one who is in control. And so we see Satan get the key to the bottomless pit. Well, what's, what's this bottomless pit? Well, seven times in Revelation you read about this bottomless pit. It comes from the Greek word abusos, where we get our English word abyss. Our English word abyss. I believe as we study scriptures, this is where the worst, most vile demons of all are being kept right now until Revelation chapter 9 and they're released. And, and it's in this bottomless pit. You can read about it. Check it out later. It's fascinating. But in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 and Jude uh, 6 and 7, you will read that evidently the demons who had rebelled against God, when they fell, there were other angels that fell with Satan. A third of the angels, the Bible says, and they became demons. Some of them, we believe, are, are around today, and they're active today, and God allows them a certain amount of authority. But then there are others who are locked away in the bottomless pit. Well, how did God decide which ones get locked in the pit and which ones have some freedom today, uh, you know, to terrorize mankind? Well, when you check out 2 Peter and Jude 6 and 7, you'll read that there was a certain amount of these fallen demons that evidently, believe it or not, had sexual relations with women on this earth. Many scholars believe that's what may have produced some of the giants that you read about in Scripture. And because they were so vile and wicked in that way, God took them and he put them and he locked them away in the bottomless pit. Check out those verses and you'll see what I'm talking about. Do that later. But what, where is this abyss today? I mean, where is this bottomless pit? A lot of people today want to know, where is hell today? This place in the Bible called hell. Well, I believe that it can only really be one place, and that is the center of the earth. Notice it's called the bottomless pit. Well, if you were at the center of the earth, any direction you would go, there would be no end. You would go out into the universe. It would be bottomless. And I believe that's where this place is located uh, today. I believe it is either part of hell or right next door. It's, it's in the same neighborhood. Because you notice when this bottomless pit was open, John said it was like a furnace. And there was heat and there was fire and there was smoke when this bottomless pit was open. And again, some of the, the demons are free today, but others are in this abyss, this bottomless pit locked away. Let me remind you, the demons know about this place. Remember the story in Luke chapter 8? When Jesus came into uh, the town of Gardenus, I believe it was called, across from Galilee, and there was a man that was possessed with many demons, and he cast the demons out of the man. And remember the demons, they said they were called legion. They started talking to Jesus and said, okay, we got to go somewhere else. Cast us into these pigs, these swine. Don't cast us into the bottomless pit. They said, we, we know some other demons are there. We don't want to go there. And remember what Jesus did? He cast them into the swine, and they went over the cliff into the water into the Sea of Galilee. And so these demons know very well about this bottomless pit. This is the same place we're going to read about when we get a little further in Revelation when Satan is going to be chained up and locked away for a thousand years in the bottomless pit during the millennial reign of Christ on the earth you've heard about. That's the same place he's going to go to this bottomless pit. You know, several years ago, that very respected magazine, I think the Inquirer, had an article about supposedly they, they thought they had found the portal, if you will, or the gate to the bottomless pit. Maybe some of you heard about this, that some miners were digging in Siberia and, and they supposedly found, you know, this portal to the bottomless pit and, and they were saying that they were going to try to open it. Well, I can tell you this, if they were able to open it, which they wouldn't be able to, but if they were able to open it, the next headline on the National Enquirer would have been this. It seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> but it would not have been a good idea. Because Satan, during Revelation 9, will be allowed to open the abyss, the bottomless pit, and to loose the most vile, evil, demonic, and wicked demons. And something, this wicked, something wicked this way is going to come. Now, as we see what is going to come out of this bottomless pit, as we look at verse 3 um, forward through verse 12... Let me tell you something that one of my mentors, one of my spiritual mentors, one of the men that taught me how to study and teach the Bible used to say all the time, and it was this. The Bible is not a hard book to understand. It's just a hard book to believe. <laughs> Have you found that to be true? It's not a hard book to understand. It's just a hard book to believe. And what we're about to read is not hard to understand. It's just hard to believe. Let's look at it. We move from the unlocked pit to the unleashed demons 
in verse 3 of Revelation 9. Then out of the smoke, out of the bottomless pit, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for how long, church? Five months. Interesting. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and they were, there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as a king over them the angel from the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in the Greek has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things, the unleashed demons. John describes here, I believe, an army of demons compared to locusts that are unleashed from the bottomless pit to terrorize mankind during the tribulation period when this uh, fifth trumpet is sounded. This reminds us again back in the plagues in Egypt when the eighth plague came upon Egypt and locusts covered the, the land at that time in that plague. I mean, this would be something like if we opened the prisons of every prison around the world today with every, the most vicious, violent criminals of all and just allowed them to run rampant around the world and do whatever they want. But this is even going to be worse than criminals. This is going to be demons. Now, the real question, again, as we go into Revelation 9, as scholars study this, is, is this to be taken literally or figuratively? And I would say both as we study it. Sometimes it's literal, sometimes it's figurative. But John tells us, you, how many times have I told you all, the two most important words in Bible study are like and as. And did you notice how many times John attempts to describe these creatures coming out of the bottomless pit and he says they were like this and they were like that and they had faces like this. Ten times he uses the word like using figurative language. I mean, if we didn't know any different, if we didn't know the context of the book of Revelation written by the apostle John in his 80s on the island of Patmos, we would think we were reading the text from some teenager. He's like, yeah, it was like these, these creatures, and they like had these faces like, man, I couldn't believe it. It was like crazy, and it was like, wow. But he's using figurative language for us here to describe this. John is not, I don't believe John is describing literal locusts. But they terrorize and they torment like locusts. And he's using that descriptive language for us. He's using locusts because we know that the damage that locusts can do whenever they are, the, that plague is set forth or whenever they, they come around. What's interesting is, you know what the lifespan of a locust is? Anybody got any guesses? Five months, from May to September. Now, we don't have locust problems around here, but in 1951 and 52, in modern-day times, there was probably the worst locust uh, epidemic that took place in the Middle East, in Iran, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. It, it destroyed hundreds of thousands of square miles of vegetation. It turned everything into desert because of the locusts. Now, John is not saying these are literally locusts, but they're like locusts in the way they behave. Notice he says they're like locusts in that they swarm and they overwhelm and they terrorize mankind. But they're unlike locusts in the fact that John says, notice they don't harm the grass, they don't harm the trees, which is what nor normally real locusts would do. So that lets us know these are not literally locusts, but they're like locusts. Not only that, they're unlike locusts in that they have scorpion's tails. I've never seen a locust with a scorpion's tail. But he's describing them in figurative language. And in verse 5, notice he says, They torment is like a scorpion. The torment of a scorpion. Well, what does a scorpion do? Uh, hopefully you've never been stung by a scorpion. I was almost stung one time by a scorpion. I was at a camp. Uh, I was speaking at a youth camp in Texas. And I was getting ready to put my shoe on. And thankfully, I looked down. And in my shoe was a scorpion. And I was able to get rid of him, you know, before he stung me. But that, that would not have been fun. But a scorpion, they sting. And they, they put some venom and poison in you. But, but most of the time, they do not kill you. It just hurts really, really bad. 
and can cause problems, but it doesn't kill you. You know what this reminds me of? It's, it is when God lets this judgment take place, he only allows it to a certain extent. He allows these, these demonic, locust-like scorpion creatures to come up on the earth and on mankind, and they terrorize, and they sting, and they harm, and they hurt, but he doesn't let them kill anybody at this point, not during the fifth trumpet. And, and it reminds us, remember a man in the Bible? Many people don't know this. The oldest book of the Bible is not Genesis. It's the book of Job. And do you remember how God allowed Satan to terrorize Job to prove Job's faith? you remember that story? Say yes. And do you remember, he let him do a lot of things to his family, to his health, but he said, you can't take his life. And this is a, that was a picture of what we're seeing here in the tribulation period, and that Job was terrorized, but he did not uh, lose his life, and Satan was not allowed to kill him. Now, verse 11 says that they, this is very interesting, and this helps us also know that these are not literally locusts, but they're like locusts, in that verse 11, John says, they have a king. Did you see that? These locusts have a king, these creatures, an angel from the bottomless pit. Well, real locusts, we know, have no king. So he can't be literally talking about locusts. Well, you say, well, Pastor Doug, how do you know that locusts don't have a king? Have you scientifically discovered, you know, studied locusts? Have you been a locust? What? How do you know this? I know this on the authority of the word of God. Because God tucked away a little nugget back in the book of Proverbs that would be necessary as we're studying Revelation. And in Proverbs 30, 27, listen what uh, God told us. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. Nice little nugget that helps us in Revelation. So who is this king of these demonic locust-like creatures? Well, scholars differ on who they think this king is. It's, it's either Satan or it's one of his chief demons coming out of the bottomless pit. Now, some scholars would say they struggle for it to be Satan because notice the angel comes out of the bottomless pit, and yet it seems that Satan was the one that got the key. But, you know, we don't understand all of it, but I think if we look at what John is saying, we can figure out more than likely who this is. Notice in verse 11, he tells us the name of the king, Abaddon or Apollyon in the Hebrew and Greek. In either way, you know what the translation of that is? Destroyer. The name of this king of these demonic locust creatures is Destroyer. Well, let's see. If we compare Scripture with Scripture, let's see if we can figure out who the Destroyer is. Because Jesus, back in John 10.10, describing Satan, said this about Satan. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to what? Destroy. And he was speaking in the context of Satan. I, I personally believe that it was Satan that was the king. If, it, if he wasn't the king, then he was certainly the one behind the king and leading this demonic force. In verse 4, we, we notice in this chapter who this judgment comes upon. Does it come upon everybody that's living on the earth at this time? No. It affects those who are unsaved. It affects, it affects the inhabitants of the earth, those who are not following Christ, specifically those that do not have the seal of God in their forehead. Remember, we learned about that back in Revelation uh, chapter 7, the 144,000 that were sealed by God, and then all those they led to Christ during the tribulation period. Evidently, the judgment does not come upon them, because I told you before, God always protects his people. Can we say amen to that? And we see them now being protected because they have the seal of God. And so we still see God's mercy and his grace even amongst this judgment. The protected 144,000 and probably those who were led to Christ um, were protected. This also reminds us of the judgment of the locusts back in Egypt, the ninth plague. Again, when the locusts and that plague came upon the land of Egypt, guess who was protected? It affected everybody but Israel, God's people. Verse 6, though, we notice the people that are affected by this judgment, they want to die. I mean, this terror and this pain that is inflicted on them is so bad, they want to die. They're probably going to try to commit suicide and take their life, but they're not able to. The Bible says that in verse 6, they, they want to take their life, but death flees from them. They, they can't even kill themselves. They've got to go through this judgment. Now, what I'm about to say is not pleasant to point out, but I think it's important. Because a lot of people have different beliefs, you know, about hell and is it a real place of torment forever or not? Will people be conscious there? Will they know they're there? Or is it, will they just die and that's the end of it? You know what God is giving us here, folks, in Revelation chapter 9? He's giving us a glimpse of eternal judgment for those that don't know Christ. He's giving us a glimpse of it. We see Satan here. We see demons here. We see torment. We see a fiery furnace. And you know what we see? People who want to die and they can't. That, to me 
is a horrifying description of what hell is going to be like. A place where people will live forever and want to die, but they can't. You know, sometimes we ask the question to people, do you have eternal life? And we're trying to ask them if they're a Christian or not. Let me tell you all something we need to not forget. Everybody has eternal life. It just depends on where. Eternal life in heaven, in peace with God, or eternal life separated from God in a place of torment. We don't like to talk about, but it's real and it's literal. And we should take it seriously. If you agree, say yes. Now, here's the good news. God doesn't want anyone to face this judgment or the eternal judgment to come. He doesn't. Let me remind you again of his heart in Ezekiel 33, 11, when he says, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God does not enjoy allowing this to happen, but that the wicked turn from his way, and guess what? They get to live. That's God's heart. Let's never forget that. But let's also remember there's no neutral ground. You know, sometimes you talk to people and you say, have you accepted Christ? Have you given your life to Jesus so you can have a home in heaven and have eternal life with him and, and, and escape these judgments and all of these things? And, and people say, well, no, I haven't really decided for or against Jesus. I'm just, you know, I haven't decided. To not decide is to decide. That's what the Bible tells us. There's no middle ground. And there's no middle ground after we die. I know, unfortunately, there are religions out there today that try to tell us that, you know, you just die and you go in the ground, or, or you're in this state of limbo for a while, or you're in this soul sleep, or you're in this place called purgatory that I never find anywhere in the scriptures talked about, and that, that maybe later you can get out. No, when you die, game over, and you're going to go one or two places based upon what you have done with Jesus Christ. And that's what the scripture clearly tells us. You know what Jesus said in John, 1 John 5, 12? He that has the Son has life. And he that does not have the Son does not have life. It's one of the two. This is serious stuff. And Satan here is inflicting this pain upon his followers. That's what's amazing. The people that are not following God in the tribulation, even if they don't know it, they're following Satan and the very one they're following and worshiping is bringing this terror on them. I mean, it's crazy. Why wouldn't they follow God? And I hear people sometimes say things like, you know what? I, I don't care if I die without God. If I go to a place like hell, all my buddies are going to be there. All my friends are going to be there. You know, it's just going to be one big backyard barbecue party and Satan's going to be the DJ. That isn't true. That is not the way hell is going to be an eternal judgment. Now, you might ask, if God is such a loving God of mercy and grace, then why would God allow this to happen? Because we, we're seeing God is allowing this to happen. It's under his permission and his divine and sovereign and just plan. Why is God allowing this to happen? Here's why. If someone rejects the love and forgiveness and grace and mercy of Christ, there's only one remaining option, and that is to face Satan and his demonic forces. And he is a destroyer. Make no doubt about it. He is nothing but a destroyer. And he only wants to lead people astray so he can destroy them. God offers abundant life. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it more what, church? Abundantly. God offers abundant life. Satan offers abundant destruction. And that's what we see in Revelation chapter 9. We've seen the unlocked pit, the unleashed demons. Now let's look at the third observation and the sixth trumpet being sounded, the unholy army. Verse 13, we pick up our reading. The unholy army. Then the sixth angel sounded. This is the sixth trumpet, the sixth trumpet judgment. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. I believe this voice is God's voice. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, the number of the army of the horses was 200, how many, church? Million. I heard the number of them, John says. I heard how many it was. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads. 
and with them they do harm. As John hears the sixth trumpet blow, he sees four angels released from the river Euphrates to lead an army of 200 million, believe it or not, to kill a third of the earth's population at this point of the tribulation, ending probably the, the first three and a half years. Now let me remind you what we saw back in Revelation chapter 6 when the fourth seal was open. Remember the famine and the wars? And remember back then, a quarter of the population has already died. Millions of people were raptured with the church. And now whatever's left, you have a, a third of the population dying during the sixth trumpet. At this point, we could probably estimate that there would be three billion people who have either been raptured or died during the tribulation period. Over half the population of the earth is now gone, either through rapture or death, most of them through death. Now, the question is, who are these four angels in verse 14 that are released from the river Euphrates? Well, let me remind you that uh, back in chapter 7, remember we saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the winds of God's judgment? If you remember that, say yes. Do not confuse those four angels with these four angels. They're not the same four angels. How do we know that? Well, first of all, because we see that back in Revelation 7, those four angels were doing the restraining to hold back the judgments for God until God said, let the judgments begin again. These angels here are not restraining, but they're being restrained until God says they can be released from the river Euphrates. We find nowhere in Scripture that God's holy angels are restrained. They're, they're set free to do God's work and do God's bidding throughout the earth. So I don't believe these are the same four angels, and I don't believe they're four holy angels. I believe these are four unholy angels. I believe these are four demons like the ones from the bottomless pit that we just read about in the, uh, the paragraph before. Now, notice they come from the river Euphrates. Now, we don't know for sure why they're being held captive right now at the river Euphrates and why they come out of that river. Um, different scholars have taken guesses as at this. We know this, that Euphrates is the area of the Garden of Eden. The river Euphrates ran through the Garden of Eden. It's the cradle of civilization where it all began. And not only did mankind begin there, but guess what else began there? Sin and evil and wickedness. It's also where the Tower of Babel was erected. It's also where the city of Babylon is from that we're going to read about that gets destroyed a little later in Revelation, where basically all of the false religions of the world to this day have been born out of the Tower of Babel, Babylon, this area that we're talking about. So maybe that's why these angels come from that area, these demonic angels. Verse 15, I want you to read this with me. Notice what it says here. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of the, man, of the mankind. Notice the day, the hour. You see, again, this reminds us this is not an accident. This is not a coincidence. God has a set hour. He has a set day. He has a set plan. And he is in complete, complete control. And we're reminded of that again. They cannot move until he gives them permission. Walter Scott a scholar put it this way in regards to these fallen angels who are about to be released. And he said this, These angelic ministers of judgment act under divine control. They cannot act without express command from God. And we're reminded again of that. In verse 16, you'll notice here there's an army, John says. He saw an army of 200 million. Now, there are two different views and interpretations of this 200 million army that is released during the sixth trumpet judgment. One is the belief that this is an actual earthly army. The other is that this is not an actual earthly army, a physical army, but is a demonic army of 200 million demons. So which is it? Well, let's think about this for a second. If this were an actual earthly army, it's a little hard to imagine at this point of the tribulation, especially when you remember that half the population is already gone, that this would actually be an earthly army that's able to be put together of 200 million people. You know, in the greatest, uh, largest war this world has ever seen, World War II, the World Almanac tells us that when all the forces during World War II were at the height of the war, it only numbered 70 million during World War II. Um, but it is interesting. 
that Time Magazine in May 1965 came out with an article, and maybe some of you have heard about this, that Red China claims to have an army of exactly 200 million. And they claim that to this day. And so some scholars have thought that must be the army of 200 million uh, that is talked about here in Revelation chapter 9. I personally don't believe so. You can make your own decisions. It's, it's, that's not really the, the major point of this. The point is there's judgment and affliction and half the population is going to be killed. That's, that's what's important here. But I think we're going to see an army that might be like the China 200 million army when we get to Revelation chapter 16 when I believe there will be a literal earthly army at the battle of, say at church, Armageddon. And so I believe that one is coming. But I don't think this one, personally, as I've studied this over and over, I don't think that this is a literal physical army. But rather, I believe the other view. I think this is a demonic army of 200 million demons. Just like what we read about in the previous uh, paragraph, in the previous chapter here. It's, it's like the demonic locust we just studied. Notice John's emphasis on these is on the horses, not the riders. It's on the horses, not the riders. In verse 17, he says, Out of their mouth came fire, smoke, and brimstone. And out of their tail, their tail was like a serpent having heads that harm and kill man. John's description that we read here is unlike any modern warfare equipment that we know of today. Now, most of his descriptions here, I believe, in, in, in this uh, passage are literal and not figurative. You know why? Because unlike the previous passage where ten times he used the words like, here he only used it two times. So we have to take it literal unless he tells us to do otherwise. If, if that makes sense to you, say yes. That's important when you're studying the Bible. And only two times he uses the figurative language like. He said that these creatures had heads like a lion and tails like a serpent. And notice in verse 18, a third of mankind is killed. But notice how they're killed. And this is what I think begins to unlock. And as I studied this this week, this part really tripped me up. And I, the Scholars were on different sides of whether this was a demonic army or a physical army. And I didn't honestly, I've got certain scholars that I like um, hold up with high regard. And I pretty much, you know, when they say it, and I go study the scripture nine times out of ten, they're right on. And, and none, of, none of my trusted guys seem to be emphatic about this one nobody seemed to really have the key and i just prayed and i said god if this show me what this really is and god showed me something that nobody else said that i for me you do with it what you want i think clears it up exactly who this army is that they're demonic and not physical and here's why notice how they kill it tells us in verse 18 they kill with fire smoke and what else brimstone I think that's the real key to understanding who this 200 million army is and that they're demonic. Fire, smoke, and brimstone. Here's the key that I believe tells us these are demonic and supernatural. The Hebrew and Greek words for brimstone is theon. And it denotes divine fire every time you read about it in the scripture. It is divine fire. It is supernatural fire, brimstone. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 17, 29. And he was talking about the tribulation period and the second coming of Christ. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and what? Brimstone. It rained fire and brimstone from where? From heaven. It was supernaturally brought by God and it destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. He said, just like brimstone that was supernatural, that came from heaven, that that brimstone was supernatural and wasn't of this earth, came on Sodom and Gomorrah and that judgment, brimstone and fire and smoke is going to come upon the judgment upon mankind during the tribulation period. I believe John here, that, that is the key that tells us this is not a physical army as we know it today, but is a supernatural demonic type army that is coming. And I believe John is describing an unholy army of these demonic forces. Something wicked this way comes. Now, whether it's a physical army or a demonic army, we can argue about that all day long. Here's the bottom line. It's horrific. It's horrific. A third of the population is going to die. And that's the main point. Now, I want you to think of everything that has happened so far as we've gone through Revelation and we've hit these judgments. You think about the seven seals, the seven seal judgments, and we saw war, and we saw murder, and we saw famine, and a quarter of the population died. 
We saw a great earthquake unlike anything the world has ever seen. We've seen meteors. We've seen asteroids and great volcanoes. And then the seventh seal opened the seven trumpets. And we've seen a third of the trees are destroyed. And all of the green grass is destroyed. We've seen a third of the sea and the sea life. And the sea turns to blood. And a third of the ships were destroyed. And the waters were poisoned and undrinkable. And there was 33% less daylight. And then today, as we open the fifth seal, we see these demonic locust creatures that terrorize and inflict pain for five months on the earth. And then as we see the sixth trumpet sounded, 200 million demons kill a third of the population. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were on the earth during this time, God would have my attention by now. Amen? And I would want to fall on my face before God and repent. And cry out for mercy and forgiveness. Which he's offering as we've seen through tribulation, uh, through, the, through revelation. He's offering to those who will accept it. But you know what's sad? Most do not repent. Most curse the very God that's allowing these judgments to come. One writer said it this way. The most frightening thing about Revelation chapter 9 is not the judgment that God brings, but the sins that people persist in committing, even while God is judging them. That's what ought to be more horrifying to us than anything else, which brings us to our final observation that we close with, and that's the unrepentant people. After everything that's happened, the people of the earth the majority of them are unrepentant. Look at verse 20 and 21. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they somehow escaped, did not, what church? Repent, which means to turn, turn from evil and wickedness. They did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. I mean, that is craziness to me. They are worshiping the very demons that are terrorizing and killing them. That's the blindness of sin. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries. That's interesting this week. I studied this and sorceries there uh, comes from the Greek word um, pharmakia, where we get the word pharmaceutical. Basically, it means drug use will be rampant during this time. People are doing everything to drug themselves to try to escape these judgments their sorceries, their drug abuse, and their sexual immorality, or their thefts. You can imagine all the thefts and looting that are taking place as half the world's gone, and people, I mean, it's just anarchy. I mean, the stuff you're seeing in Egypt right now, that is nothing compared to what we're reading about here. And here we see, unfortunately, dead sinners worshiping dead gods. They're gods that will not be able to protect them or deliver them, yet these people continue to reject the true God and worship Satan and his idols. You see, sin blinds people and keeps them in their fallen condition. That's why we have to be, we have to stay away from sin because it blinds us and it calluses us and we see it right here in Revelation. And as we look at this and we read this, you, you know, humanly we think, wow, how could these people continue to live the way they're living apart from God and rejecting him and all these horrible things are happening to them? But let me ask in a very practical way this. How can people today try to live apart from God and think that life is just going to go great? You look at people sometimes, they're struggling in their marriage, they're struggling in their families, they're struggling in their parenting, they're struggling in their finances, they're struggling in all kinds of ways, and you look at their life and they're trying to do everything apart from God. They're trying to do it on their way according to the world's ways and the world's systems. And everything is a mess and everything's falling apart. And yet it seems like they still won't turn to God. And I would say it's just as foolish to do that today as it will be in Revelation chapter 9 someday. And I hope that's none of you. I want to believe that you're here today because you want to follow God. And you want to do what's right. But you know what? If we're honest, if we're brutally honest this morning, every one of us, myself included at times, try to do things our way, don't we? And we try to turn our back on God and say, I got it, God. And I don't know about you, but when I do that, I make a mess of things. And it's painful. And some of the terrors that have happened in my life, I brought up on myself because I tried to do it myself. And I think this is a great practical lesson for all of us today. Stay with God. Stay on his side. He's in control. Now, I know what some of you all are thinking this morning. It's what you've been thinking the last couple of weeks. Wow, this is so encouraging, Pastor Doug. Something wicked this way comes. Yay, I'm so glad I came to church this morning and trudged through the snow. Well, can I, 
close with some good news. Let me close with some good news for you. Number one, I'll remind you again, and we see this throughout Revelation, very practical. God is still in control. Let's not forget that. And those that are on his team and on his side, as I've said before, I've read the end of the book. We win. He's in control. You don't have to be freaked out. You don't have to be scared. You don't have to be horrified when you know God and when he knows you and you're on his side. Nothing happens without his permission. He's the one you want to stick with. Number two, I remind you again, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and you're a believer, we won't be here for this stuff. And we can all say, praise God to that. We won't be here. We're already protected. We've already been raptured. And even those that do come to Christ during the tribulation will be protected from these judgments. Now, as we've seen, they'll have to probably give their lives as martyrs. They will be killed by the Antichrist for their faith. But these judgments, they will be protected from. But you know what? I hope one of the things that this does for us, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a ha the glass is half full kind of guy. And I, every week I'm going, how can I present this in a positive way when it's really difficult? And, and I think one of the things this has helped me personally, and I hope will help you as we're studying these things in Revelation and these judgments, is this. It makes me appreciate my salvation more and more every day. That God has saved me from this. You know, when we say, are you saved? Well, if you're saved, that means you're saved from something. You ever thought about that when we as Christians say we're saved? What are we saved from? We talk about what we're saved for, saved for heaven and saved for a relationship with Jesus. And yes, that's true. But we're saved from some things. We're saved from the horrible judgments we read about in Revelation. And I hope today and each and every week as we look at these and you know Jesus Christ, you'll thank God for what he has saved you from. Maybe you've gained a greater appreciation what he saved you from. If you, if you have, say yes. You know, we're, we sing a song around here called Mighty to Save. And we're going to close with that song in just a moment. And maybe today as we sing that song, Mighty to Save, you have a greater understanding and appreciation today what he has mightily saved us from. And I hope that all of this every week will be a challenge that we'll share our faith with those that don't know Christ because he's mighty to save them as well. You know what? Amongst all this bad news and doom and gloom, there is still the good news that Jesus today wants to save people. You know, it's kind of like if you were to go to the doctor and you're having problems with your health and he tells you, well, I've got some bad news and some good news. The bad news is you have this problem with your health. You know, maybe you have a disease. You know, maybe you, you have some ailment. And he says, that's the bad news, but here's the good news. You can take this medication, you can take this treatment, and we can either, we can either cure it or we can help it to get better or, or you know, cause it to go dormant. And, and then you go, okay, okay. And we got to remember amongst all this bad news, there's the good news that Jesus is still the solution. We sing that song around here now too called God is the Solution and he's still the solution. And even though something wicked this way will come, something holy has already come. And his name is Jesus. And he is the escape from all of these things. Let me close with a couple of scriptures. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden. You're trying to do it on your own without God. Come to me, Jesus said. I'll give you rest. We've talked about anything today but rest. That's what Satan offers. But God offers rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Aren't you thankful for that? That's what Jesus offers. And one of my favorite scriptures, you know it, I quote it a lot. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think, think towards you, says God, thoughts of peace and not of evil, and to give you a future and a hope that we don't have to go through these things. That's the heart of God. Next week, we're going to get a break. You know, we had a break in seven. God gave us kind of a little eye in the amongst the storm. We're going to see that in, in Revelation chapter 10 next week. You know, God knows just how much we can handle. Next week, we're going to get to come up for a breather. We're going to see a little pause. The, the, the trumpet judgments are going to cease, and there's going to be a little parentheses, and John's going to fill in the blanks of some other things that are going to happen, and we're going to see this book that John's going to eat. What's that all about? We're going to see this really interesting angel come down and put one foot on the ocean and one foot on the earth, and he's got a very special message of encouragement that I hope you'll come back for uh, next week. Would you bow your head?